0: there, everybody. Welcome to episode 30 of Side Kickback Radio. Um, my guest this week is Vic Levin, whose latest film, 5 to 7, is coming out actually today, if you're listening to this when the episode drops. Um, it is Tuesday, August 18th, and uh, yeah, 5 to 7 goes on VOD and iTunes today, and, and I can't recommend it enough. It is a marvelous piece of film from Mockingbird Pictures. Um, it's starring Anton Yelchin, Bernice Marlohay with, uh, supporting performances that are unbelievable from Glenn Close and Frank Langella, um, and it is definitely one of the top films I've seen in the last few years for sure. Um, it'll, it'll make you laugh, it make you cry, it, it's a fantastic film. Uh, I felt like I needed to, uh, intro this episode just real quick because, uh, I had some tef- technical difficulties and given that Vic is such a crazy busy guy with, um, with Survivor's Remorse um, on Starz Network and they're premiering on Thursday and he's all over the place. He's going to go to Atlanta, but I was I was fortunate enough to get a moment to speak with him and uh, given the time crunch, I whipped out my cell phone and covered the first four and a half minutes of the interview with my cell phone and then uh, my computer was kind enough to <laughs> kick back in for me and so, uh, and so uh, regular quality kicks in at about four and a half minutes. So uh, thank you for tuning in and uh, here it is, my interview with Vic Levin. Uh, go watch Five to Seven. You won't regret it. Uh, welcome everyone to episode thirty of Sidekickback Radio. I'm now hitting the downhill s- slide.
1: Oh, don't uh, don't say that. <laughs> don't say
0: that. I've hit the magic uh, twenty nine plus one. You know. <laughs> um, and I'm sitting here with uh, Victor Levin. Uh, and you are a primarily a writer, um, by trade, but uh, you've also now started directing. Uh, with a little film called Five to Seven. Is that, is that all sounding good? That's all sounding good, that's true. Um, and let's begin sort of at the beginning of, of your career. How, uh, when did you get started?
1: Uh, graduated college and uh, through my college signed up for a series of interviews at uh, Young and Rubicam New York, an ad agency. You didn't have to have a portfolio. You just sort of needed to prove to them that you wanted to be a writer. I think I gave them a play as a writing sample. And they hired me and a couple other uh, people for, um, I think it was $13,500 a year. And that's how I got started. I worked at 40th and Madison uh, and other agencies for seven years writing commercials and sometimes directing them. Uh, radio commercials, print ads also. And uh, it was very good. It was a lot of fun and you uh, were made to refine several of the same skills that you need in television and film. Absolutely. So,
0: um, when did the jump to sort of television start? In
1: 1990, I got a call from my, my childhood friend, the late Alan a long-time television producer, and he said, I think I can get you hired on a on a sitcom if you'd like to quit your now very comfortable job in New York <laughs> and, and come out. Uh, so I did. Uh, I had been writing my scripts at night trying to uh, clear the bar, as it were, write things of a high enough quality that I was hireable out here in LA. Hard to do when you're not here, that is, in Los Angeles, meeting people, shaking hands, um, you know, getting the business in your bloodstream, but that was how I chose to do it. That's probably why it took so long, either that or the scripts were just terrible. Maybe they would have been better if I had been here but uh, I'm sure they were terrible. Uh, finally one was good enough that I got a job and um, at that time, you know, if you were competent, if you got your first job that was a, that was a very, there was a very good chance that if you acquitted yourself well you were gonna be able to keep working. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different now but you know at that time there were a lot of network sitcoms which was what I did and um you know opportunities for employment were all over the place now it's ironically uh... even though there are more scripted shows on the airwaves it seems very hard uh... to really establish yourself i i I really tip my cap to the people who are starting off now because it requires i think more legwork than it did back in, in in my time you know in my time there were there were a finite number of people uh, doors that you had to knock on and eventually one of them opened but here it just seems like there's an infinite number of doors and so mm-hmm. it's it all seems so much more chaotic now than yeah. then definitely and
0: um, i guess mad about you would you say that that's your kind of first big
1: yeah there television? were i mean there were there were uh, good shows before that the Larry Sanders show dream on both for hbo Um, And then from Dream on to Mad About You, where I really grew up and learned how to do it. I was fortunate to work with Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser and uh, wonderful writers like Jeffrey Lane and Danny Jacobson and many others uh, who, you know, taught you how to do a good show. And uh, Larry Charles, who came in to run the show, the storied director of of the Borat movies and, you know, producer of of, uh, a whole bunch of great television himself. Uh, and and uh, at some point, uh, I was when Larry left, I was given the show to run for the last two years, and that's where you really learn um, by doing in terms of running an organization. You know, making sure the bills are paid, making sure things are on budget, making sure the show's funny, making sure everybody's happy. I mean, everything that happens is your responsibility, and it's um, very similar in that sense to the directing a feature. So that's really. That's really when I grew up in the business, I think.
0: Now, I guess my first kind of question about your experience in television—that I, I like—is kind of a burning question for me—is, is you were on Mad About You? According to IMDb, at least it says sixty-one episodes, um, but the show ran for I think, uh, way more than that. Is that correct? I,
1: I don't. I I'm not sure if that number's right, but I I got there in season three and stayed till season seven, mm-hmm. and we did at least twenty, twenty-two. Episodes a year, so I don't see how sixty one could be right i maybe i don't I, I don't know how they calculate yeah it.
0: um but so my question is is um executive producers and writers come and go on a show, and I guess what is can you shed some light on on the kind of logic behind that or or the reasoning behind that because a show is its own thing, um and you know it's got its own tone and its own vision and and obviously it'll change through nuanced ways as writers and executive producers come and go. And so what's your perspective on that whole process?
1: Fatigue. It's mostly (laughs) about fatigue. You know, uh, I think, first of all, it is an exhausting job. It's no less exhausting than directing a feature. And by executive producer, I assume you mean showrunner executive producer. Mm -hmm. The person who's shaping every script and also responsible for everything that happens. Uh, behind and in front of the camera and for everything that happens budgetarily, ultimately. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no end to the work you have to do. I'm sure I was working 90, 95 hours a week for, you know, a solid 24 months when running the show, probably even more if that's possible. And I think people are, after you have done that for two or three or four or five years, you physically have to move on and also artistically you have to move on. You know, you can't um, be expected to crank out a hundred episodes involving the same characters and the same situations or slightly different situations um, with, the, with the, the freshness and the energy that you that the medium deserves after a certain point you cannot be expected to do this as well as you did it when you had a full tank of gas and people know that and they want other creative challenges so combination of physical fatigue and and uh, sort of creative hunger for something new causes a showrunner to move on to a new show that they're creating to Mm -hmm. another show that needs to be run or simply to some R&R writing a novel writing uh, for Broadway like Jeffrey Lane did Um, going to work in the movies like Larry Charles did, uh, uh, people are, um, you know, I think pretty plugged into their own um, uh, energy and hunger levels. And when you don't, when, when you feel even a slight diminishing of your hunger as regards a certain project, it is time to move on. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't get there because I ran the show for two years and I still had a full tank of gas pretty much. Mm-hmm. But I can understand how at some point someone would say, you know what, it's best for everybody if if I move on. Now, there are shows where the showrunners have endless supplies of energy like Breaking Bad and Mad Men, right? I mean, that's those are written by one person. Well, the David Simon shows, uh, The Wire, for mm-hmm. example, those are effectively written by, show run by one person. Uh, for their entire run mm-hmm. uh, David Chase on The Sopranos you know there are other writers of course but there's one person at the, at the helm for the entire run of the series and that's great I think in the ideal that's how you would do it um, if I'm ever fortunate enough to be there that's how I hope to be able to do it I hope not to run out of hunger and passion before the the show has concluded itself I think endings are as important as beginnings when it comes to a series if not more so you know that's what you nobody talks about the pilot of the Sopranos nearly as much as they talk about the finale of the Sopranos right Mm -hmm. that's that's the power of endings so I would want to be there for that but I understand people who just say uncle I gotta lie down
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, so you you mentioned another show that you worked on which was Mad Men um, which is starkly different from Mad About You. You, know, you go from a sitcom to you know, one of the greatest dramas to Grace Television. And then Survivor's Remorse, which you're working on now, which is back to another comedy. And so do you, are you, do you enjoy that back and forth and swing between comedy and drama?
1: Survivor's Remorse is, a, is a really a serial comedy. I mean, there are, as you'll, as you'll see uh, if you watch season two, which, if I may, premieres this week <laughs> on, the Stars, on the STARS network. Um, you know, it really is a serial comedy. And I'll tell you, in my, in my personal opinion, the two things are merging a little bit, at least in better television. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always said, for example, that The Sopranos was one of the funniest shows on TV. And people would say, you're out of your mind. <laughs> you know, it's, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, four times a week, they make the finest jokes that you're gonna hear. It's only four times a week, but it is still four times a week, and and it is, and it's brilliant when they do it. So you know, I'm of the belief that you make your you make your drama funny and your comedy serious. I think that's how life is. I think life rarely presents itself in in strictly comic or strictly dramatic ter- terms. Uh, you know, the funniest things. People have ever said have been at funerals or at other times of extreme distress. So uh, I think in better TV the the, the two things are merging, and I try not to think of one as a drama and another mm-hmm. as a as a comedy. Obviously, there are certain rules, certain levels of tonnage that you can't exceed. If you're working on what is ostensibly a comedy, you know you you, you you've got to at least pay attention to the fact that they're supposed to laugh every now and then and uh, the, the opposite if you're working on a drama but 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 still you know good writing is good writing entertainment is 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 entertaining first and foremost rather than strictly funny or strictly serious uh, so I, I just don't conceive of it that way Andrew I, I just try to do a good job on every script uh, to write like myself within the context of what the showrunner wants Mm -hmm. and to not uh, hold myself hostage to a set of rules
0: yeah well I think it's perfectly fitting that you say that because five to seven I think nails that completely I mean the 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 highs are so high in terms of the the laughs or if you will uh, and the lows are so low you know the heartbreak that hits you it's it's incredible how how well-rounded that this film is Um, in that way and it's also a different medium so did you feel like in writing um, this script with that idea in mind of like you're saying make the drama funny and the comedy serious um, and in being an indie film the gloves are kind of off so to speak you know the boundaries are a little wider I mean can you talk about writing this script of 5 to 7 well because
1: it's a because it's a film it's it's definitionally longer even than an hour of television, though shorter than you know long form television yeah. um, ninety minutes a hundred minutes hundred ten minutes this film happens to be ninety seven minutes is is a uh, or ninety six is it is it that's a very good time to tell a, a story with a beginning, a, a middle, and an end that's a that's a good healthy amount of time the audience can easily stay with you. Even the ones with the shortest attention spans can manage an hour and a half. And if you, you know, if you, if you're reasonably economical about how you write it and, and not wasteful of their time, you can carry them along for that, for that amount of time without fatigue setting in. So it's easier to shift, to build a story in such a way that a dramatic turn is, is accomplishable, um, and doesn't feel sudden or forced it would be hard to do that in 20 minutes, 22 minutes and 19 seconds, like the mad about used, used yeah. to be, a number I will take with me to the grave, <laughs> believe me. Uh, um, you know, it's, and it's, I think it's, it even can be challenging in 44 minutes, uh, although the better writers certainly seem to do it. In 90 minutes, it's easier. So, you know, uh, the short answer to your question is I don't think. I don't think in this day and age there's a huge difference between independent film and the best television in terms of the freedom with which you're allowed to attack it or the uh, personal nature of the material as a reflection of oneself. But I do think that it's certainly when you have more real estate to work with, it's easier to make a series of moves that might take you from comedy to drama and back.
0: Can we talk? Let's talk about the dialogue for a second because it's incredibly unique. I remember watching it and thinking like, I feel like it's the it's the way people wish they thought and these character in particular brian um our lead character who is an aspiring writer um you know he speaks in a way that is so unique um and i'm so glad you put this in the trailer or whoever is responsible for the trailer put this in there um he shakes the hand of the husband of the woman he's having an affair with and he says please excuse any hot dog related moisture like people don't normally talk like this. So where did that come from when you were writing this character, Brian?
1: My uh, style, for better or worse, is to keep the good guys good and the bad guys good. That's how I think characters should be. Uh, And actually, you know, the good guys have to be flawed a little bit, although you know they're essentially good. And the bad guys have to be really, really excellent in certain ways, even though you know they're essentially bad. There aren't really any bad guys in this movie, but you know what I'm saying. In general, the the antagonist has to be decent, because I think that's how it is in life. I I meet very few really evil people. Most people are a mixture, and I bet that's true for you. Mm -hmm. So um, I want people to treat each other decently, and I don't want them to speak in scenes as though they are playing the surface of what's going on. For example, if he had been angry or um, stricken mute, that would have been playing the surface of what was going on. I wanted to go to, and always want to go to, a deeper level where you get to what's, what's in his lungs, which is, oh my God, you know, I'm... I'm cheating with this man's wife. I'm so ashamed. On the other hand, he maybe he seems he might want me to. And on the other hand, she definitely has his permission. But on the other hand, I was taught not to do this. But on the other hand, he seems very nice and he's shaking my hand and I really would like to make a good impression. But on the other hand, he's my enemy. But on the other hand, he clearly is not. And so what comes out is, please forgive any hot dog related moisture. <laughs> right? He's just trying to get through the moment and as best he can Mm -hmm. and the audience understands and they they generally laugh at that joke and and because they understand what he's going through they understand that that mass confusion Mm. that's that's in his head and he's a writer so he's allowed to be clever right if that's clever he's allowed to come up with something that's that's That he knows on some level is funny, but that is also a true. He's embarrassed because he's eating a hot dog like a, like a putz. Uh, (laughs) at this moment, and he gets into a car and he's got that, you know, that steamy hot dog, you know, (laughs) layer of moisture that you get, that you only get from, from those hot dogs. And so that's, and so that's what he says. So I, I mean, I think people do talk like that. Uh, not everybody. Yeah. but those are the people I want to write about. Why would I want to write about somebody who, did, who didn't, who didn't come up with interesting things to say yeah. when put in a bad situation? There's plenty of that. I got plenty of that in real life. Yeah. I got boring conversation all day long in real life. I don't yeah. want to put it in the movie. I'd rather put something in the movie that tickles you. <laughs> nice.
0: Um So this was your first time directing a film, correct? Directing right. a, a feature film. Um and what was that experience like? And you know, you, not you. You've written stuff before, and you've handed it off to a director who will then take it and create whatever performances. You know, with I'm sure some input from you, but now you're in control of the performances, and you wrote the words. I mean, what was that like for you?
1: I think if you, if I listed for you my fifty favorite movies, uh-huh. I would I bet you that forty five of them were at least partially written by the director. Huh. So that includes, you know, all the work of Truffaut uh, or almost all, um, all or almost all the work of Woody Allen, uh, all or almost all the work of, of well, no, I'm not sure about all, but certainly The Godfather from Francis Ford Coppola where he shared screenplay credit, you know, and and the reason is that. The material is in the bloodstream of the director in a way that it cannot be if the director didn't write it, if it didn't pass through the director's typewriter, metaphorically speaking. You make decisions that are better in terms of the overall quality of the material, the project if you understand it from the cells on out. And you can only understand it from the cells on out if you've written it. You cannot, I don't think it's possible to come to a script. Certain people can do it. I mean, Steven Spielberg can do it and Alfred Hitchcock can do it. I mean, if you have that otherworldly talent that they have, yes. But let's lay, you know, the giants aside for a second and just talk about the rest of us mere mortals. I think you have to really be inside the material uh, from the beginning. And understand all the choices that were made, even the ones that don't appear on the page, in order to accurately, correctly make the 10,000 directorial decisions you're going to have to make as you produce the film. That's my own opinion. So it was extremely gratifying to be able to make those decisions. It was great fun to be able to make those decisions knowing that they were. I wasn't making them arbitrarily. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, here's how I saw the scene in my head when I wrote it. And here's what I need to do to make it like that. And here are the 93 things I didn't do, even though I thought about doing them, um, which I also bring to these decisions. So I know what kind of bag he should be carrying. And I know, you know, whether it should be two o'clock or four o'clock in the afternoon. And I know which street he should be walking up in Manhattan at that time of day and uh, to get from point A to point B. And I know what he should be wearing and I know what this guy should be driving. I know all that stuff because I've been living with it as a writer from the very, very beginning. and I think that helps. I think it makes for a better project most of the time. again, unless you're unless you're this kind of you know preternatural talent that 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 some some directors have mm-hmm. uh, that's a different that's a different ball game. Those guys can see into a piece of material with an x-ray vision that i don't have i need to i need to live it and and in this case i did so it's it's great fun to not only to make those decisions but to know that those decisions are correct in the context of your own definition of correct and to be it's it's very liberating i mean oh no that should be this kind of umbrella and you just know that's the right thing you're not sitting there going oh my god what kind of umbrella because you just kind of know because you've been there since it was a blank page Um, so it was very peaceful is the short answer to your question. It's a very peaceful, calm, even as the chaos of production is raging, the, the, the process of putting it on its feet intellectually is very, extremely peaceful. It's, it's almost as though you, you are, um, you know, finally, uh, uh, taking something out of your closet that's been sitting there for years that you knew you had to take out and and present, and it's it's very gratifying to know that out it's finally coming and there it it finally is, uh, and that it's going to be presented in a way that you think is the right way. Mm-hmm. That that's a great feeling. It's even when even on the terrible days, it's the most fun <laughs> you can have. You know, even on the miserable, rainy, traffic-filled awful days it's they're fantastic days and on the days where everything goes right I I can't imagine anything being more fun mm.
0: so I'd imagine you want to do it again <laughs> I, as soon as they
1: let me you know it's it's um look uh, your movies have to perform mm-hmm. uh, critically we were very nicely received and that's great and and hopefully you know things like the DVD which comes out tomorrow and its yeah. appearance tomorrow being August the 18th and its yep. appearance on iTunes, which is tomorrow, being August 18th, that's five to seven. <laughs> is the name of the film. Hopefully, these things are are strong enough in the marketplace mm-hmm. to make you know future investors say, okay, you know, yeah. he, he made a pretty good movie and and um, and it, uh, it it was successful enough that we can invest in him again. And that's you know that's what uh, that's the linchpin. Yeah. And then of course you have to go and you have to. Create the next piece of material, and it has to be appealing to actors. And the process of production uh, starts up again, and you have to get a million good breaks. But Yes, the second they let me, I'll be, I'll be back there.
0: Yeah, um, you mentioned that the story's in your bloodstream, um, and it, you're just referring to the script when you said that. But but also this experience of this film, so to speak, uh, not necessarily that it happened to you, but you witnessed uh, a French couple when you were. In your twenties, you went to France with your girlfriend, and you witnessed some striking way of of exhibiting a relationship that you had never seen before.
1: Right, they had this kind of marriage, and you know, uh, as as uh, I'm I'm fond of saying, I looked at my shoes a lot. I mean, I was very, <laughs> very embarrassed. You know, it's when you grow up a certain way, yeah. you know, conservatively and, and or relatively conservatively. Mm-hmm. That is to say, conservative. In the, in, the, in the American suburban sense of the word. You know, you, you're not prepared for this kind of thing. But there was the husband and there was the wife and there was the boyfriend and there was the girlfriend and everybody knew about everybody and it was all well and good as long as certain rules were established. And that, you know, that kind of thing sticks in your mind. It took a long time to make it into a story. But because um, I couldn't figure out what the ending was really. Uh, for, for the longest time but, but it is, that kind of thing stays with you and you know that you have to a, as a young person re-examine uh, the rules that you've been handed uh, just to s- test their strength and um, you know unless you've thought about that a long time unless you've really thought through all the twists and turns of it both literally and philosophically I don't think you're really prepared to make the two sides of the argument that a responsible film has to make, right? It's not our job to say, here's how you should live. Nobody cares. Nobody's coming to me for instructions on, on how to live. But what they might come to the movies for is the raising of an interesting question in which both sides of the argument are well articulated and the audience is free to decide for themselves that's my job I think mm-hmm. so in order to make both sides of the argument you got to watch and you got to listen and you got to think of things from everybody's point of view you know that takes a while and you got to grow up a little bit you got to get a little perspective you got to get a little experience um, so so yes in that sense it's it's uh, you know it helps to it helps to live it but I didn't live it emotionally so you know that has to come from elsewhere mm-hmm.
0: yeah uh, let's Let's talk about uh, casting for a second, and in particular, um, the cameos that appear yeah. uh, in the film, and it is with with Heavy Heart we talk about this. Yes. As Julian Bond passed away two days ago.
1: Yes. A terrible loss for every thinking, fair-minded human being on this earth. That was a life well lived. Uh, we will all miss mr bond and we are uh i think eternally grateful for his contributions uh to society and to human discourse um he was um wonderful to work with i i can't tell you how great his spirit was how big his heart was he had such a good time he was so happy to be there he was goofing around with <laughs> daniel blue and alan gilbert and and uh Lambert Wilson and Berenice and Anton and Olivia. I mean, he really, he had a blast and he came to the movie two or three times. He came to the Washington premiere. He came to other screenings. He was, he was really a delight. And, uh, uh, you know, the kind of thing that sometimes in the chaos of the moment, you don't, um, take enough note of, but we made ourselves. We said, just for a second, just let's, let's absorb. The fact that he's standing here Mm -hmm. and that, you know, Alan uh, Gilbert is standing here and Daniel Blue is standing here. Let's just take note for a second of of that, of those facts. Yeah. Um, They were uh, difficult uh, in some cases to get the cameos, but... I knew, and in other cases, not difficult. I mean, for example, in the case of Mr. Bond, Julie Lynn, one of the two producers of the film, along with Bonnie Curtis, was an acolyte of his at the University of Virginia. And, you know, those who's they stick together. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty easy, relatively speaking, phone call, email sequence. Mm-hmm. And he, he couldn't have, you know, been more gracious about it, saying yes. And not only he, but also his wife, uh, Pamela was in the was in the film. And they came together, you know. Um, as for, uh, Monsieur Boulou, that was, uh, un peu plus difficile, mais seulement un peu. He was, he was, uh, he was lovely and actually catered the meal that they eat that night, yeah, which that. we took, which we took pains <laughs> not to show because it was supposed to be at the end of dinner and I didn't want to. <laughs> you know i didn't want this this desiccated food <laughs> sitting there and say you know meal by alan uh, by uh, daniel <laughs> Ballou. oh my god can you imagine so we yeah. sort of shot above the plates but but uh but he was i mean he was wonderful and um and and alan gilbert who is just so sweet and normal and i don't know how much you know about the world of you know uh world class philharmonic conductors mm. but the not all of them are sweet and normal <laughs> uh, i i'm, I'm just going yep. to just going to tell you that yeah. and this guy is just the greatest and and uh he brought his wife Kaisa and she was in the scene as well and she was and daniel brought his uh close friend Elizabeth De Cargale and and so all six were there mm-hmm. and, uh, and and we had a blast and the, the best part of it which is um, unfortunately, not quite audible in the movie. Uh-huh. W- was in the dinner scene, Andrew, there's a conversation between, uh, Monsieur Boulou and Alan Gilbert. And the conversation is about the differences and similarities between being the chef d'orchestre and the chef de cuisine. And they have a conversation about whose job is harder, mm-hmm. which I loved. <laughs> and if, and if it had been a different kind of movie or, you know, maybe if, that scene had had to accomplish a different kind of thing. Yeah. It would have been so great to just stick that in the film completely unscripted. As yeah. I say, it's there because I just sort of wanted it to be there. But you can barely hear it. And they go on and on about, you know, the similarities in their two lives. And these are guys who every night are proving it. Every night he's on stage in front of, you know, the the New York Phil audience, which is the, as demanding as any audience in the world. Every night... You know, Monsieur Ballou is, is, is on stage himself at for however many venues he has at this point. Half a dozen. How many restaurants does a man have in New York? And they're all every single night you're proving yourself. Even at his level of success, you're still proving yourself every night. Mm-hmm. Alan Gilbert still proving himself every night, yeah. right? You know, Daniel Ballou going on television with Anthony Bourdain, proving himself every, going on the Charlie Rose show, giving a fantastic interview. Proving himself every night, there is no let up in these guys, and that is incredibly inspiring mm-hmm. you know that's who you want to be around that's who you want to be working with that's who you want to be learning from yeah. so it was a great night there's a picture somewhere I'll show you <laughs> the fourteen of us lined up in this magnificent yeah. you know dining room and um it was it was really one of one of the highlights of the shoot
0: um you mentioned. At the q and a that I attended that a, the letter writing was essentially how you got that, and i think I feel like that's a th- thing that's lost on people like who writes letters anymore, and yet the way that you get these incredible personalities into your film was by writing a letter to them and kind of making a plea that's
1: and, right uh i I'm really glad you asked that because it's a um it's a very big part of what we do. And no one realizes it. I didn't realize it. Nobody told me. Julie Lynn and Bonnie Curtis did not tell me <laughs> that in the process of making this movie you will be writing seventy-five letters to be <laughs> And not by the way, not short notes. I'm talking about page long, mm-hmm. you know, 250 word or something more, probably five hundred single spaced letters, each of which is different, each of which is to a stranger,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but each of which has to convey a, a, a certain soulfulness, or they're not gonna say yes. You're not handing them a big paycheck. You know, there's no guarantee of success. This is, you're asking people for, uh, to take a bet on you to make a bet on you. You're asking them to go out on a limb to do something that's, in in, in some cases, not convenient, that that doesn't have immediate rewards. They have to love the material or they're going to say no. And that applies to the composers I wrote to, the actors I wrote to, the cameo uh, players I wrote to, the, you know, the, you name it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Writing to Madame uh, Bruny-Sarkozy asking for the use of the song uh, Lucia dans une chambre, which, you know, is so important to that scene and and, um, and 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 basically begging her if she could drop the price a little bit so that we could afford it. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all letters and um, it is a lost art. It has to be done just so. Uh, I think uh, you know our batting average was pretty good, but it's hours and hours and hours of time and and you never know you know you don't even really know if they read them. If they say no, yeah. you hope you hope they do. Yeah. But I would I would tell all the prospective directors out there, you know, if your producers know what they're doing, like mine do, you're gonna have to write a bunch of letters, and they're gonna have to be great letters. So you know, get to it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess to finish, I guess spoiler alert. Uh, I, I would love to talk about the ending, kind of because you mentioned that it was. Um, it was difficult for you to find the ending for it.
1: You mean the ending of 5 to 7, which comes out on DVD and <laughs> iTunes tomorrow, August 18th? Absolutely, yes. Ah,
0: okay. Um, so if you haven't seen it yet, I'd uh, <laughs> turn off this interview now because we'll talk about the ending. But, um, but please do watch it and you'll see what I mean because it's a very unique ending in that it doesn't necessarily work out for our, for our romantics, um, for our romantic leads. Um, or in your mind, does it? You know, um, I mean, you said the ending was difficult.
1: The end, the ending is difficult uh, and, you know, if you're not making a studio movie, you have the option to do an ending that isn't uh, necessarily happy. There are very few studio movies that end unhappily. Mm-hmm. Some, but not many. Uh, many more indies a- a- end in a, a, perhaps an ambiguous or even an unhappy way. Uh, and And so you... Everything is open to you, right? I could have ended it any way I wanted to, and I would have had the support of my wonderful Bonnie and Julie. Mm-hmm. But, and the investors who, who, you know, were in it, they're in it emotionally too. They're not just guys who, you know, and women who write checks and walk away. They, they, you know, they're, they're with you. But here was my thinking, Andrew. It's, it it, it simply didn't make sense that she would leave her children for Mm. him. You know, she's a good person and she understands that she would have felt so guilty about the possibility of doing injury to them that she wouldn't have been able to enjoy her time with him or be happy with him. And she knew that it was a road to ruin. And for him, you know, as he got older, he probably would have come to the same conclusion and felt guilty about that. And so I think they would have been doomed if they had gone off together. Also, you know, to leave a movie with two characters getting what they want at the expense of other people who have done nothing wrong felt wrong to me. didn't feel good. On the other hand, to have it end angrily, to have it end purely on a note of sadness felt wrong because I don't think that's how life works. I think eventually we do recover from these things, at least to some extent, and we find a way to put them to bed uh, so that we can live with ourselves. And even if we're lucky, uh, acquire wisdom and develop a fondness for the experience, even if it didn't end the way we wanted it to at the time. That's the goal. That's you know, a 50-plus-year-old person speaking. I'm not sure I knew that when I was 20-plus. I'm certainly not sure that that Brian knows it when when the when the event happens and he loses her. Um, but I I felt that it was appropriate and in its own way somewhat happy, bittersweet, if you will for him to get an answer to his question which is is was it as important to her as it as it as it was to me and if you can get that answer you can live with it and that's why he says you know you don't always have to be in something for that thing to have value it can be over and still have value that's why he talks about impermanence because we really do carry these things with us every step we take. So it's, it's not necessary that they ride off into the sunset in order for the ending to be, in its own way, happy. Um, and, uh, and that's what I was going for. You know, ultimately, um, he he's, he's wants to be a poet. He wants to be a writer. He wants to be someone who, who thinks of the world in poetic terms. And he's able to do that he cries out for this knowledge and he gets this knowledge by virtue of the wonderful pedestrian chaos of new york the same thing that brought them together brings them together again for for one moment in which to understand that he had had this effect on her just as she had had on him i mean is there anything worse if you're carrying a torch for someone is there anything worse than showing up one day 10 years later and the and the woman goes what was it it was it andrew was it was it anthony what was the name you're sitting there thinking of her all day long, and she's yeah. not so much that's horrible yeah. that's um memory loss or something that's you know memory cost or something I don't know what the there isn't a term for it, but it it kills me mm-hmm. the, you know that phenomenon and I think it would have killed him but he 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 learns the opposite when she takes off the glove he learns that. You know, these two people did touch each other most profoundly, and in a way that will last all their lives, and that is my definition of a happy ending.
0: Beautiful, perfect, <laughs> great. Uh, well, we talked about the ending at the ending of this uh, this episode. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat about it, everyone. Please do go watch Five to Seven coming out on iTunes and VOD. On August 18th, on August 18th which, that, is, which might be today. Which is right today, if you're listening to this uh, right away.
1: Andrew, pleasure speaking with you. Thank yeah. you for having me.
0: Of course, thank you. Um, do
1: you feel up for the sign-off? Sure. You are listening to Side Kickback Radio. Watch <laughs>